Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so remember where we've been in the book of John. You know it well, don't you believe? You really have a good um, outline of what the book of John is like. It is masterfully written um, in chapter one. In the, well, first off, we had a great mission statement, did we not? Where is it? You got a cheat sheet right up there. John 20, 31, it says, these things I've written that so you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing in him, you would have life. The entire book is written so that people would believe. Believe what? that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is who he says he is. And by believing that pivotal, pivotal thing, you would have life, new life, abundant life, eternal life. And in the whole prologue of chapter one, he gives you every theme that is coming in the book of John. And we've looked at those themes throughout this book. Um, he breaks it up, remember, in the first four, what we call portraits, of basically Jewish institutions, and he tells them, I am the fulfillment of those. And what were they? What was the first one? A wedding, right? Uh, first off, he starts with the wedding, and at the end of all things, we will end with a what? With the wedding, the marriage supper of the lamb. He is the groom, and he is about to go gather um, his bride. And so we started with the wedding, and then what was it? The temple incident where we find out that when he says, go ahead, uh, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. Why? He is the temple, right? And remember in, the, in chapter one, John says, we, he came and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father. And so he's, he's telling us, I am a temple. The, the glory of God will never again dwell in a temple made by man. He is the temple. He is the fulfillment of the law. And what's the third one? The rabbi. Talk with the rabbi, right? Um, oh, teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things. You must be born again. As the bronze serpent is raised in the wilderness, so the son of man. Um, and so we have that whole discussion with this teacher, um, who basically was blind and came in the dark. And so we had that whole thing. Then what? What? The well. That's right. The well where many people found their bride. And who did he find? The Samaritan woman. We had all that. And so he's showing who he is. And then remember, those were bookended by what location? Cana. And then the next four are bookended by Solomon's portico. And they are four Jewish holidays or holy days. And what was the first one? Sabbath, Passover, right? I am the bread that's come down from heaven. What's the third? Feast of Tabernacles, where he says, I am the, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, for from his belly will come forth fountains of living water. And it all fit the symbolism. Uh, then what? He said, I am the light of the world. Do you remember that? All in the Feast of Tabernacles. And then what was the last one? Purim, the Feast of uh, Dedication, Hanukkah, 
right? And, um, and so he says, I am the consecrated one sent by the Father. And so basically he is showing who he is in all their remembrances of Yahweh. He is telling them, I am. I am he. And then we got to, and, and within all of those I am statements, right? He is showing who he is. And then we get to the seventh sign, which is the raising of Lazarus. And remember what I told you happens at that moment. Everything pivots. And from that moment on, that is going to usher us into the Passion Week because the raising of Lazarus was the catalyst that started everything. And so we looked at that. And um, then we went into chapter 12 where we see Mary anointing Jesus' feet. Remember how last week I set it up for you, right? They're all in Bethany having that last supper together with his friends. And what do we think they were talking about? The coming Passover. How's this going to be? They're all reclining around the table, including Lazarus, because he's in this thing. And we find out that they too want to kill Lazarus. Remember before this, they had raised Lazarus from the dead. So in Bethany, there's a party. But over in Jerusalem, there's a back room uh, meeting going on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, two completely different groups of people didn't agree on anything other than the fact of their hatred for Jesus. And they're debating back and forth. And then the voice comes from the back, that creepy voice of Caiaphas who says, y'all are missing the whole thing. The only way we're going to handle this is one man must die so that the rest of us don't have to. And those prophetic words, one man, it's better that one man die than the entire nation. Uh, the high priest spoke the truth. He didn't even know, he didn't mean it the way he the way he spoke it, but it's truth. I'm losing my microphone. Um, and so we have this backroom thing going on. In the meantime, they are now putting out arrest warrants for Jesus. And we find out that they are also after who? Lazarus. Because Lazarus is the catalyst. That story is bringing all kinds of people to Jesus. They've had this dinner in Bethany. All the men are reclining around the table. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And we talked about this last week. Can you imagine the decibel level in that room? As they're talking about what is going to happen when they go to Jerusalem, what are they going to do about crowd control, how are they going to keep him safe, what about the Romans, how is this going to go down, Lazarus is apart, and then the slow motion, do you remember? If I was writing a movie screen and she walked in, everything would go slow-mo. And you would have wonderful Jewish music playing in the background. And you would see her bring in and break the seal on the bottle and the aroma and their eyes meet. And it would be an intense act of love on her part to anoint him. She couldn't go to battle with him. She couldn't go be a part like a man, but she could give all she had and anoint him. And that would have been in slow motion. And then he says, and they're upset. We had the whole thing with Judas. And he says, no, she is anointing me for burial. Words like what Caiaphas spoke, one man dies for a nation, these prophetic words they don't understand. Do you think she thought she was anointing him for burial? No. And so we have this, and we ended last week at that place in verse, basically verse 9. So that's where we're going to start. 
says, when a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So now crowds are coming. They're coming to Bethany. They're coming not only to see Jesus, but to see the man who was rotting and walked out of the grave, Lazarus. And because, remember... This is Passover, and we're going to talk about that even more. So these crowds have been coming. Uh, By the way, when it said when Lazarus was raised from the dead that many believed in him, what do you think they believed? Do you think it was necessarily a saving belief or that they just believed this is Jesus, this is our Messiah, this is our King? Could it have been a little bit more like the feeding of the 5,000 where it said, and many believed? But then when they didn't like the sermon, what happened? They bolted, right? And so now they're coming with this expectation. Here is the one who raised him from the dead. And literally, they are seeing the one that came out of the grave. And crowds are coming, and they're hearing the story. It says, so the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So the momentum is gathering. People are coming to him to see Lazarus and to see Jesus. And don't think for one second that the Sanhedrin does not have spies everywhere. They know what their people are doing. The only reason they have kept their independence is because they know what their people are doing. Because if they don't stay on top of their people, who will? Rome. And so they know that there is a buzz that this is a problem. They've already put out an arrest warrant and they know crowds are gathering in Bethany and they're trying to figure out what to do. And now crowds hear that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. At the time it's Passover, right? The population in Jerusalem is about 50,000 people on a normal day. But on Passover, Listen, depending on who you read, it varies. Some say that on Passover, there were probably 120,000 people in Israel. But yet, when you look at Josephus, and Josephus says that on an average Passover, 256,000 lambs were slaughtered. So some look at that and they think, okay, well, wait a minute, let's do the math. It's typically 10 people per lamb. And so if you look at that, some people think it could have been up into, into 2 million people in this area, okay? So, but whether it was 120,000 or it was 2 million and it was typically 50,000, the fact is Israel could not hold all the people. There weren't enough places to stay. So you need to understand that people were everywhere. 
They were camping everywhere. They were camping all up along the Mount of Olives, which was a beautiful garden. They were camped down in the Kidron Valley, all down in the valley. And so what has happened is Jesus is now coming into Jerusalem and crowds hear that he is coming. He already has a crowd with him. And as he comes, more crowds are following him as he comes over from Bethany, over the Mount of Olives towards the Kidron Valley into the city. He is gaining momentum and the crowds are increasing. Um, this, by the way, is, so we're not going to go into it, but this is, by the way, when Luke says that Jesus again weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem. Oh, how I sought to gather you. But he weeps, and I wanted to remind you, do you remember the last time when I talked to you about him weeping with Lazarus? It was a quiet emotion. It just meant tears. When she weeped, it meant audible sound, right? But when Jesus wept, it was quiet. It was just tears. In this one, it's audible. So he comes out with these crowds gathering, knowing what they are imagining he is here for and knowing they're missing the mark. And he looks out over his people and what does he know is gonna happen? And the light has come into the world and his own will receive him not. But many, but those who do, remember in chapter one, the themes, we're seeing it right here. And he audibly weeps over the people. The crowd knows the story. They know everything he has done. Word has gotten around. They also know the tension that is in Jerusalem. Do not think they don't know. Word has gotten around that there's an arrest warrant out for Jesus, and they're also looking for Lazarus. And so they feel the tension. They know everything that is going on, but they also... They have attention, there is a danger, but something is happening. There is a movement, and this man can raise the dead, and they're following him. And although there's a fear, there's what else? There's an excitement. A finally, finally something is about to happen. Finally, this is our guy. Finally, this is our king. And so what do they do? In their mind, they're like, we're in. This is happening. It's on. And they grab palm branches. Do you know what those mean? The palm branch is the sign of their national independence. It is a symbol for them like the American flag would be for us. And what it does is it takes their mind back to the Maccabean revolt, which I've taught you already. Okay, because it goes back to when Judas Maccabeus and his brothers gained independence for Israel from Antiochus Epiphanes the Greek. And when he gained that independence and he got the, um, the temple back and he restored the temple, when he rode into Jerusalem, they waved palm branches for his triumphal entry. He gained their independence. So what are they hoping in their heart? This is a triumphal entry like that, that this is our king. This is our Judas Maccabeus. He is going to gain us independence from the horrible Romans. And so they pick up palm branches. By the way, if you ever go to Israel, you'll see many coins that have palms stamped on them because in both the Jewish revolts, the first one, you know, that ended in the destruction of the temple, um, in AD 70 by the Romans, uh, but you will see coins, silver and bronze, and they will have palms on them. It's like, no, our independence, 
That is, that is what it is all about. The silver ones, just so you know, this is just useless information probably. Uh, the silver ones have on there Jerusalem the Holy, and the bronze ones say freedom of Zion. So you can feel this uh, desire for national freedom. This is a political thing that is happening right here. Um, they call it a triumphal entry, but it's a little different, isn't it? Because if you think about Judas Maccabeus coming in, you think about him riding on a, on a stallion, he's coming in with uh, stories of victory on a, on, and um, there's weaponry and soldiers. and all. This is very different. This is almost more like a parade and a worship service. Um, but they call it the triumphal entry. They shouted Hosanna, which means Lord save us. And then they say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They get these from Psalm 118. So right out beside that in your notes, Psalm 118. I'm just going to highlight for you some of the things within Psalm 118. It's all about the steadfast love of God. It is a messianic psalm. It's called the Hallel. They, they sing it in many of their festivals. But here are some highlights of it. It talks about the steadfast love of God. It says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? What feeling, this is their song. This is what they sing for their freedom, that God is on their side, that his steadfast love lasts forever, and that he will set them free. Oh, say can you, are you feeling it? What they're, what they're feeling? All of these have messianic tones. And then the pronouncement, they say, even the king of Israel. This is our king. And by the way, all of these are correct. What they're saying is correct. It's absolutely biblical, actually. They recognize who he is. They're not wrong. But what they're wrong about is his kingdom. That's what they're wrong about. They don't understand his kingship. Their view is way too narrow. It goes on, we're going to talk about that in a minute. It goes on to say that he found a young donkey and he sat on it. And it says, just as it is written. Do you remember when I told you the portraits, right? And every now and then what happens in the portrait? Like the Thanksgiving portrait, remember? Uh, with, and that little face is turned around in the corner and looks back at the viewer. Um, who... It's the Thanksgiving. Who did it? Norman Rockwell. When you look at the table, that little boy has his face turned in the corner. This is what John does to us. He gives us a picture, and then every now and then he turns in the corner. He goes, listen, we didn't understand this either. When this was happening, we didn't have a clue. But at the end, after he was glorified, we went back and we checked out Zechariah. A matter of fact, all this was said about him from the very beginning. And so that is what he is saying. And he says, it's found in Zechariah 9. So it says this, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So there you go. He just turned around and looked at us and filled in the blank. Zechariah 9, look at it. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of, from river to river, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So that is the context that they are seeing here. So it, we see that the king is humble. But by the way, this is not because of the animal. The animal is not showing humility, okay? Because actually the donkey is a symbol of royalty and peace. So when a conqueror would come in, a political conqueror, a commander, he would ride in on a horse. But when a royalty was coming in peace, he would ride in on a donkey. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders rode horses if they rode to war. But if they were coming in peace, guess what they rode? They rode a donkey. And by the way, it says a colt, a foal of a donkey. This is a Hebrew expression for pure breed. So this was a majestic royal mount. So the fact is, he's humble. But it's not that the donkey was, was lowly. The donkey was more a symbol of why he was coming, that he was royalty, that he was pure, but that he was coming in peace. You can see this in 1 Kings 33. If you remember, you probably don't, but in the Old Testament, when David is passing away and he's handing his throne over to Solomon, he tells them to get his son and to put him on his personal mount, his donkey. And so we see this, not to mention the fact, do you remember what uh, God told um, Samuel about horses in general and Israel and their kings? He told them, you tell these kings, because remember the whole time he's like, well, I am your king, but you want a man as a king? Okay, but let me tell you what it's going to be like. And then he says, and you better make sure that they do not accumulate horses. Do you remember? Uh, for one thing, the Egyptians were the ones who bred horses, and he didn't want them going back into that world, which he took them out of. But the idea of gaining horses, and so you often see the Israelite kings riding on a donkey. And so here you have this beautiful symbolism of royalty, this pure king coming in a triumphal entry, but he's coming in in what? Peace, okay, as peace. And this is what they don't understand. One commentary said this, though the triumphal entry was a joyful celebration, a Roman spectator would wonder what was so triumphal about this entry. It didn't compare at all to the kind of parade Julius Caesar had when he came back to Rome from Gaul. 
Then there was a parade that lasted three days as he displayed all the captives and booty he had brought back. In contrast to this, the procession of Jesus must have seemed pretty humble, and this showed that Jesus was a different kind of king. He was coming to bring peace, and we're going to look at that even more. But that's his first coming. There will be a day, there will be a second coming. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I just want you to see the contrast. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. There is coming a day where he will be that one that comes on a white horse and there will be a conquering and a judgment. But this is not what he came to do the first time. So they are correct in the fact that, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ah, even the king of Israel. And he comes in royalty and purity, riding on a donkey because he's coming in peace. They didn't understand. Look back at Zechariah 9, and let's really look at at what he came to do. They think that he is coming to conquer the nation of Rome to bring them national liberty. But look what he actually says here. It says in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak what? Peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river's end and from the river to the ends of the earth. He shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea. He will be a king to all nations. This is not about coming in and overpowering one nation and conquering one nation so that they can have national liberty. This king is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the king that now is coming in riding on a donkey to bring peace between man and God, to bring peace between the nations. They wanted a political king to crush the Romans and establish independence. He was a king bringing peace. This was always the plan. Do you understand that? The book of Acts tells us how he goes about doing it. But back starting in Genesis 12, what did he say to Abraham? Abraham, you my, you my man. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And what? All nations will be blessed through you. I think people forget this whole narrative. Do you remember it started one people? And we revolted. And because of that, God came down the Tower of Babel and he confused the languages and the nations were born. And they went out in rebellion against God, the nations. But God chose a nation, a man, to become a nation. And he says, listen, through you, all the other nations will be saved, through you. And so not because they were great, but because of God's love, he put his eye on the nation of Israel, who were just like all of us, stiff-necked as all get out, right? And really led by sight, not by faith. 
and had a trust problem, and he stayed true to them, and he held on to them, because through them would come a Messiah that one day would bring peace to all nations. And then we see this come together at Pentecost when he does the opposite of Babel. Remember? At Babel, he confuses the language, he breaks a rebellion, and he spreads the people to slow down sin, to be honest, because we police one another. He's like, if they are together as one culture and one nation under one wicked leader, there ain't nothing they can't do. And so he split them up. And why can certain nations not demolish the world? Because other nations police them. That's why. That's what has been happening along the way. And in the meantime, God was watching his nation to bring up a Messiah who would bring peace to all nations. At Pentecost, what happened? He used language not to divide. He used language to share the gospel, to reunite because he is building a body. And what is that body? Both Greek and Jew. That's what Paul says. This is the mystery that we never understood. We never saw coming. The fact that both Greek and Jew would be in Christ Jesus as one body. This is the narrative. This is what he was always coming to do, and they didn't understand. Matter of fact, Isaiah even talks of it. Isaiah says he will be a light to the nations. Isaiah says that God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. This Messiah was never to just be the king of Israel. The Messiah was not going to be some national political savior. He sent his son to be the light to all men. The Jews wanted another Judas Maccabeus to overthrow the Romans, but Jesus didn't come to overthrow political leaders. Think about that. Do you really think that God needed to become flesh to overpower a nation? Do you know your history? What did Daniel say? Daniel goes, God has been ruling over the kingdoms of men. God puts into place whomever he desires. He has been in charge this whole time. God did not need to come down and put on flesh so that he could overthrow the Romans in person and create a national uh, freedom for Israel. That's not what he came to do. That's not what his kingdom is. He is coming so that he can lay down his life so that he can unbind us from sin and death and he can create his own kingdom, a light to the nations. And they missed it. They didn't understand this. Most kings come in by way of triumphal entry to the position of their thrones. Think about it. They came in from battle and they told the stories. Uh, they had all the, the booty from the, the wars and they went and they sat on their throne. This pure king came in riding on a donkey. He was royalty to bring peace to the nations. And what was his throne? Cross. That throne would be lifted up. His throne was the cross. Jesus came in to take his place on the cross, which was glory. The disciples didn't understand this till later. This entire scene is fueled by political fervor. I don't think you understand the buzz. I mean, we find out in just a minute that the Pharisees that were watching were like, dude, this ball is rolling and we ain't gonna stop it. Like, if they had desired to come arrest him in private, 
they missed their moment. It's on. I mean, by the time they got to him, the crowds were unbelievable. They were waving palm branches, singing Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And he's riding in on a donkey. And we find out in a minute, they're shouting stories, waving signs, doing all kinds. I mean, it is an event. And they're like, uh, there ain't nothing we can do about it now. The whole world is following him. And so you need to understand, I got to thinking about this. I cannot imagine the energy in this place, what it felt like, um, the excitement, uh, the fear and excitement all rolled into one. Finally, 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 something is going to be done. We've been waiting all this time. We cannot wait. Oh, my gosh. So I thought of the, the most stupid example ever because I thought, how in the world do you get from this to a few days later, crucify him? How do you get there like that far? And I got to thinking about our own political world, which, you know, I don't get political too much up here. Although, you know, I was laughing about that whole backroom scene, remember? About the Sadducees and the Pharisees and then the one in the back of the room that says, I'm telling you, we just got to, I think that still goes on today, right? I think we have two groups of people who can't agree on one single thing, except possibly for their hate for something to keep their power, Right? And someone in the back of the room goes, oh, I know how to fix it. Get rid of them. You know, I mean, I, I just think there's nothing new under the sun today. All, all the corruption of man that's going on. So there's all kinds of similarities going on here. But I thought, okay, when was the last time you see, like, that I felt this movement, this political scene, and I thought back about, you know, Trump and the Capitol. And so I remember thinking about how I was feeling and all this, and there was an excitement in me, and, and don't make it match too much, okay? Don't overthink this. Uh, there was an excitement in me like, yes, finally, people are going to get out of their houses and stand up and, and fight for our freedom, and I had all this, oh, you know, like it, it, something is going to happen. Finally, I mean, I'm tired. I'm tired of the wickedness and the depravity, and they're not taking my vote. And I mean, I was just feeling all this pent up inside me. And I remember when it happened, and then when it happened, and how it played out, by the way. And keep in mind, that's just me in the living room watching that, feeling this. Something happens when you take this and put it in a mob. When you're feeling the energy, not just of your feelings, but of everyone around you, how do you think mobs get out of control? Because there is, a, there is something that happens in the force of a movement of groups, right, that feed us. So I'm back there going, yes, yes, it's going to happen. And then when it all took place, I felt this, wah, wah, wah. And to be honest, I got mad. I'm like, you know what? You have pumped us up all this time. Oh, this is going to be great. You're going to give us some great information. We're going to start this movement, and we're going to win this thing, and we're going to do this. And then all of a sudden, what, I, what was that speech you just gave? That's the worst speech you've ever given. And it was like, wah, 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 and then nothing. I was livid. I'm like, you know what? He ain't our Savior. Blah, blah, blah. I was so mad for a little bit. Anybody like me? Okay. And it's just feelings. And I thought, aha, can you imagine this? The oppression. I mean, come on, we still live in comfort so far. I'm not happy about certain things like gas prices and food and all that. 
but we're not the Romans being taxed up to 85%. Um, they had been oppressed for so long, waiting for this king, waiting for someone to deliver him. And now this guy had all the signs that he was the one and that triumphal entry and they're waving palms. And I mean, it's like the 4th of July. It is political. It is awesome. They are fired up. And then, man, did they miss it. And I can understand how in a few days after that, they, they go, crucify him. It's just so interesting when you put yourself in the scene of what is going on in their culture, we begin to understand how they went from here to here so fast. They are looking for relief. They are finally looking for freedom and that leader, and they think they've got it. The crowd was testifying about him. They were shouting. There were speeches. There were signs. They kept telling the story, he is the one who raised Lazarus. I mean, can you imagine that? He can raise the dead. Wouldn't you think he'd be a pretty good king? He can raise the dead. He can uh, multiply food. He can feed you. I mean, what are you worried about to go against the Romans? He can walk on water. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. He can provide food for you. There's nothing that you could be lacking with him as your king. And so they go in. The ball is rolling and the Pharisees realize... There's nothing they can do. And they say, look, the whole world is following him. I love John and his double meanings. He's always throwing out double meanings, right? Caiaphas, the, uh, Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And basically, what are they saying? Yeah, look, in their mind, it's too late. Everybody's following him. But they have no idea what they just said. The whole world is following him. Look at verse 20. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Hmm. What did they just say? There ain't nothing we can do. The whole world is following him. And what's the next section? The Greeks. They show up. Who are these Greeks? Well, they're referred to in scripture very often as the God-fearers. They are those who have been drawn uh, not only to Judaism, but the God of Judaism. And they even come to many feasts and worship. That's why you have the court of the Gentiles. They could only come so far. They worshiped so far but yet not be circumcised. And so they were often called God-fearers. Um, you have uh, like um, Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles. There were Gentiles everywhere. You remember when Jesus goes um, the storm? He has the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And you remember when he landed where the demoniac was? The Decapolis? 
There was a great revival in the Decapolis. And so many there believed. You have stories like the centurion. You remember him? Jesus cured the centurion's servant. Um, he spoke at a distance and, and cured him. You've got people like Cornelius. So there, there were Gentiles who were following or interested um, in the worship of the Jews' God, in Yahweh. But John is the only one that brings this up in, in this week. Isn't that interesting? He's the only one that brings this story up about Greeks coming during the tri, you know, around the triumphal entry to see Jesus. But doesn't that make sense to you? Because what are some of the themes of John? Where are you going to find it? Where would you find themes? Y'all can talk to me. John chapter 1, right? How about look at John 1, 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's one of his themes, and boy, does he hit that, right? Especially with Nicodemus. You're not in the kingdom because of blood, your blood, because of culture, because you're a Jew. You must be born from above, right? And he goes into that. And so, of course, John, in the triumphal entry, is going to tell us that already there were Gentiles or Greeks that were coming after to seek after Jesus. Uh, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. John's theme of the book was that he was the God to the world. He loved the world. He sought all men to make a new family. And so, of course, we see it right here. We are seeing a transition happen. We are seeing the door begin to shut on Judaism and open up towards who? The Gentiles. Okay, so we're seeing this transition. But yet something has to happen for that really to take place. They came to Philip. I wonder why. Philip has a Greek name. Philip is a Greek name. So they came to the one that would be the closest to them. And I don't even know what they wanted, really. But it's interesting to me that Philip thought he needed to go to Andrew. So Philip, there's some kind of hierarchy going here, or I wonder what actually they wanted. But he goes to Andrew, and then both of them go to Jesus. Um, I can't help but, but think right here. Uh, do you remember when he says, I am the good shepherd? I lay down my life for my sheep. I have sheep that you don't know about. But they will hear my voice and they will follow me. Well, guess what? Here come some of the sheep that they don't know about. And what's going to have to happen? I will lay down my life for the sheep. And so we enter into the next section where Jesus answers and said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What is that hour? The cross, his suffering. Do you catch the fact that the cross equals glory? It's the suffering that equals glory. 
The fact that he will be lifted up, that, that is his throne. The fact that he is glorified through the most horrible thing because he fulfilled it, he did it. He, the whole world, angelic and all, is watching amazed that the Son of God would do such a thing that he is lifted up, he is glorified in his suffering. I thought about Job in, in the sense, whether you think Job is historical or it's a parable, either way, it works because Job is not glorified just because, I mean, his story's not amazing just because he suffered. I mean, he went through a lot of crud. I can relate to Job. Sometimes I think I'm the Job of the West Valley. Um, like, okay, what else, Lord, right? But the reason Job is so is such a story, the, the glory of Job, is not the fact of what all he went through, but the fact that he still believed no matter what all he went through. He's glorified in his suffering because of his faith in suffering. Jesus did it. He's glorified through that horrible event because he did exactly what he set out to do. He did exactly what he was born to do. The hour had come. He is saying to them, this is where I'm headed and why. I thought, isn't it interesting that he doesn't quote the Old Testament here? He uses a typical analogy that anybody could understand, which makes me wonder if the Greeks are right there. Because he looks and he says what? Well, let's read it. The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, so this is absolutely the truth about what I'm about to tell you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Unless a grain of wheat dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does that mean? It multiplies. It duplicates. It creates more like it. The disciples and the gospel will multiply when what? When Jesus dies and is risen again and at some point sends who? The Holy Spirit. And then those disciples make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. So if I'm going to duplicate, what will they look like? Well, Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. True life comes through death. Those who follow me, my sheep, they're going to be like me. I love the fact that it says, um, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be. It doesn't say, and where I'm going. So he's not just talking about eternal life. What do we know about Jesus and the Father? Jesus came to say and do everything the Father asked him to do. It was a relationship. It was a relationship that went on and he was on a divine plan and he went where the father told him to go and he said what the father told him to say and he did what the father told him to do. And that was all known through the, this relationship between the father and the son. The Holy Spirit gives us that relationship with Jesus and he is saying that my servant will be what? Where I am. 
I cannot help but think about Henry Blackaby and his experiencing God Bible study. If you've never done it, you should. It's old and it is awesome. It changed my way of thinking because it told me, wait a minute, it's not my job to determine what God should do. I don't create a ministry and then say, excuse me, but I'd like your stamp of approval. Um, I'd like you to be for this and I'd like you to fund this. No, what do we do? We listen and wherever God is working, he will ask us to join him. And where he is, that's where we will be. And we will be doing what he would be doing. And so I thought, I love the fact that it says that they will be where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Listen to this scripture out of the message. It's so cool. It says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. C.S. Lewis has the most amazing quote, I think that applies to this. It says this, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will, will certainly be wrung. Ooh, this makes me cry. Possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and, pertur and perturbations of love is hell. It's not about this life. He had such a love that he, as the king, was willing to give his life so that we could have life. He did not hold on to the things of this world because he knew that it's not about this world that it is about the world beyond and the fruitfulness that comes out of giving your life. And he says that those that follow me, they will be like me. I must die so that I could be duplicated and the gospel could come to all nations. This is what he came to do. And that does not mean that we're gonna be comfortable and that we're gonna be in our box and that we won't be broken and there won't be tragedy. It's amazing to me, everything about Jesus just seems upside down. It is absolutely against everything I naturally wanna do. His kingdom, upside down. How do you build a kingdom? Important people, strong people, military people, money people? No, how did he build his kingdom? The poor in spirit? The mourners, the meek, that's how he built it. How did he 
bring his kingdom about by laying down his life. And he says, and if you're going to be my people, my sheep, then you're gonna be where I am. You're gonna hear my voice in relationship and you're gonna follow me and you're gonna do what I do. And so really half the time when I'm trying to decide what to do, I decide what I want to do in my nature. And then I try to choose the absolute opposite of that because everything about him is upside down. He came in this triumphal entry knowing that his popularity and the opinions of man, so fickle, because in a few days, they're gonna reject him. He wept, but he knew what he was coming to do. He was not coming in riding on his stallion to save his people as a nation from Rome. He could have done that from heaven if he chose. He came down to start his kingdom, to be the king of kings and lord of lords, to bring peace to the nations, to rule from sea to the ends of the earth because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And now he says to you Greeks, oh, I love you. And there's a transition happening, but it ain't gonna happen until I lay down my life. And when I do that, I will be duplicated. And then you just wait and see what happens because as I'm duplicated and multiplied, the gospel of the Lord is gonna go out throughout, yes, Jew, but all of Gentile. And I am gonna form a kingdom in Christ Jesus, a family. And they need to be like me. So the question are we like him? Do you have a, the only way we can be is to have a relationship, not just no words, not have academic knowledge, but literally like he and the father, side by side relationship, listening to the Holy Spirit, which I believe we squelch constantly about how to handle our steps. And most of the time, I would tell you, it's upside down. He came in a triumphal entry to give his life for his people. Next week, we're gonna come and we're gonna see, I'm gonna look at the difference. Isn't it interesting that the Greeks came in and said, hey guys, we want to see Jesus. And yet the Jews, they had seen everything and they refused to believe. And because they didn't see there came a point where they couldn't see. And we're gonna look at some hard verses in here when it says that their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened so they could not understand. I think sometimes we don't understand that. The fact is, there was nothing left to show them or to prove to them or to see. It wasn't about him speaking plainly or being clear. The fact is, they refused to see. Therefore, they were unable to see. They refused to see the capstone, so therefore they closed their eyes and it became a stumbling stone. And so we're gonna see, isn't it interesting how John is wrapping up? This is the end of his public ministry. He is wrapping up his themes in this chapter right here. And we'll finish it up next week, all right? Hey, get your face in the book. Do some of your own study um, and be prepared to hit this right in the middle of the chapter. Okay, Lord, thank you so much for today that we could just walk through your scripture. And God, I pray that the only way we're gonna hear your voice is to stay near, to stop 
to stop all of the other voices, the distractions, the calamities, and to be alone with you. The only way, Lord, that we're gonna wrestle this flesh is through the Spirit. The only way someone like me who wants to fight will lay down her life will be because of you and our relationship. But God, I truly believe that in a world where everyone's fighting for rights and everybody has an opinion, that the way that we're truly going to change hearts, not gain political freedom, but change hearts because this is not our kingdom. We're not citizens of this kingdom. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But God, we still have a job to do and it will be through laying down our lives through love that will absolutely change the heart of our neighbor. You said in your scripture, God, that it is the kindness of God, the love of God that brings us to repentance. Lord, I know that myself, you know it with me. The fear of God got me down the aisle, but it was the love of God that kept me. So God, may we hear your voice, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And may we do the same. And wherever you are, that is where we'll be. And Lord, I thank you so much for loving all nations. I thank you for putting up with and following this select group of people so that the Messiah might come and salvation would be mine. I thank you for the hope that we have and that this is not our home. I love you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.